This podcast is a Tucker Media production. For more information, head to tuckermedia.com.au. Hi everyone, welcome back to the Media Mates Podcast. My name's Ralph Tucker. Each week I'll chat to somebody I've met from my career in and around the media industry. All of them have such great stories to tell. I'm not Michael Parkinson or Andrew Denton, but I do enjoy chatting to interesting media people about where they've been, where they're headed next, and everything else in between. My guest today is Dan Mullins from 2GB. Dan has been working in radio for 15 years after earlier careers in the police force and as a musician. We chat about his late entry into the radio game, the pressure of working on the Alan Jones Breakfast Show and walking the Camino de Santiago for his 50th birthday. Dan is someone I've known for close to 20 years and is a terrific bloke, so I really hope you enjoy our chat. Dan Mullins, welcome to the Media Mates podcast. Ralph, it's great to be with you. You've just come off a shift from the Alan Jones Breakfast Show, currently hosted by Ray Hadley. How's that going? It's going great. It's going really well. If you're going to get someone to fill in for the big, uh, the big shoes, fill the big shoes, you need the number two man in town, and he's doing an outstanding job. One of the great things about Ray is he's not frightened to do the hard yards. He's in there at three o'clock before, before even us, and he's across all of the issues before we go into a meeting at four o'clock, just like Alan is. Uh, he's the perfect replacement host, if you like. And working with him, although it's a different style, he, Ray has a different style. It's very much still the same. It's a frenetic pace from the minute you walk in. We, we, we say working with Alan, you're redlining the whole time. Uh, and that's, uh, I think, an urgency and a energy that you hear on the radio when you're listening to the program. You know, Alan runs at just fever pitch. Yeah. Ray doesn't necessarily run at fever pitch. He's sort of a bit more light and shade, but it's the same energy, the same intensity and a lot of hard work behind the scenes. So how do you find working with the two different personalities. I mean, obviously, they each bring something obviously of great quality to the table, but they are, as you mentioned, have they their own different styles? Well, basically, my job, Ralph, is the same, and that is to produce news of the day, uh, summarise things like the it, 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 big, big item stories, so big hit list items. So there's been a lot of rain. There's been a lot of rain in a particular area. So I'll summarise things like that. And that's the same with Alan as it is for Ray. That doesn't change. So there's 20 to 25 readers a day, every day. So 6.30, I plonk down in front of him the letters of the day um, and 15 to 20 readers. So that's news from here, overseas, a couple of quirkies always, just in case. Well, you're giving them the option then of being able to dictate how the program pro- yeah. proceeds. And that's the same. It doesn't change whether it's Alan or Ray. And I give them, frankly, exactly the same stuff. So it's up to them then to decide what they want to do. We go back a long way. Yeah. Uh, to the days of the Max Rowley Media Academy. Now, you came into, I guess, the media game late in terms yeah. of a lot of kids go straight from school, straight to uni or straight work experience. Tell us about your unique path to, to get to radio and, and actually try to encapsulate why it took you a little while to work out that's where you wanted to go. It, it's indulgent, but I, 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 I left school in the early 80s. I'm a bit older than, than most of my colleagues, but I left school in the early 80s and became a Queensland policeman. I was actually sworn in by Russ Hins, Terry Lewis and Sir Joe Bjorki-Peterson. And, and I spent two and a half years in the on the streets, and it realized early on it wasn't for me. 
So I then left and decided, well, what would I do? Uh, I did six months at Expo 88, which was fantastic. And then uh, a mate of mine, I always played guitar, always played at weddings and pubs and clubs. And a a mate of mine said, had just taken over running a, a dozen pubs in southeast Queensland. And he said, look, come and play for me regularly. So within no time at all, I was doing six or eight gigs a week. And made a very good living. In fact, by the time I was 23, I bought my first house at 23 years old as a professional musician. I did it then full-time for nine years. Toured the country, played everywhere from Cairns to Perth, um, and averaged about 400 gigs a year Wow! for those years. I've done a lot of gigs. And then in 1996, the, the, uh, the government, the state government allowed poker machines into pubs. And it killed off midweek gigs. I was, in those days, employing four blokes, four full-time musicians. I employed them full-time. And the, the, the industry just died overnight. You didn't have Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. So you couldn't do Newcastle or Maitland. You couldn't do then Byron Bay. And you couldn't do the Gold Coast leading into the Brisbane gigs on the Friday and Saturday. Yeah, so yeah. so you, we were forced off the road virtually overnight. Um, in fact, we were booked to do an orientation week, a whole week of gigs in Adelaide, and we didn't have one gig leading us around there. So it was simply too expensive to do it. So it dropped overnight. My, my then girlfriend, now uh, wife, Jennifer, said, you're going to have to get a job. So I said, Was that scary? Well, well, very scary. You wouldn't have been up before well, midday most days. I wasn't. Of course I wasn't. <laughs> of course I wasn't. And, 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 you know, you mean I'm going to have to get a job where I can't drink beer? So she said, yeah, you got to get a job. So uh, I started answering the telephone at a marketing company in the city. Uh, I was getting $11 an hour. And they eventually said to me, oh, you're, you, you're pretty good at this and made me part of this sort of call center thing. And after about 18 months, they sort of made me a team leader. And then 18 months later, they made me a, a sales executive. Mm. So before I knew it, I was wearing a suit and tie and writing reports and, and writing. That's when I first met you. You're a suit right. and tie guy. A suit and tie guy, right? <laughs> and and I, I found myself writing tenders for government, sitting in this little booth writing, you know, just it's so much uh, – so much depth of kind of just absolute rubbish that I couldn't stand it. I absolutely hated it. But I always had a love for the radio, and that stems from travelling a lot in vans. And, yeah. and you were on the road for, for hours and hours and hours at a time. It's your company, right? Yeah. <clears throat> and you'd, you'd go, and I particularly loved country radio. So you'd listen to either the, the regional stations and, and 20 odd years ago, it was a lot different than it is now. You had mm. local personalities, local issues, and you'd, you'd, you'd tune in and say, oh, wow, that's a great story. It's from the country, you know. You could, there were country personalities and you'd hear from a lot of those people in, the ta- people in the towns. So it was great. And I also was interviewed a lot in regional radio because you'd be playing the, the town that night. So you might be in Maitland and the local radio station would talk to you. So I loved right. the atmosphere of the radio station. I loved listening to the radio. So I thought... Look, I don't, I'm not happy doing this corporate stuff. Why don't I study radio at night? And that's where I found you at the Max Rowley Media Academy in 1997, I think it was. Yeah, about that. Let's talk about that experience. I mean, because you want to join the dots. There's an interest there in radio. As a guy that's probably at this stage in his sort of mid or close to mid-30s, early yeah, mid-30s. early 30s, yeah. What, it, what were you hoping to, to get out of that? Because, I mean, obviously, you want to get a job in radio, but it's not as easy as all of that. No, that's right. Okay, so, so the grand vision, if you like, while, while studying and, and, and also working during the day as a, as a corporate wally, uh, the grand vision was to end up doing a breakfast show in the country somewhere. 
That's what I wanted to do, to own some land and get the heck out of Sydney. So when I finished with Max, I did then a, a short course at the Australian Film Television Radio School afters when it was out at Macquarie and started frantically applying for jobs. Well, thought I was a show for a job in Karatha, which would have, I think, dramatically changed my my life. Yeah, yeah. Um, also, uh, Charters Towers. I thought I was on the shortlist for that. I didn't get that either. And then I got to one day a phone call from uh, Steve Swadling, the general manager of 2GN Goldman, and that changed my life. Why do you think you did get knocked back from these places? Because obviously when you're young and when you're just fresh out of, out of school, money's really not an issue. But when you're in your sort of early to mid-30s, the finances yeah. are, are fairly significant and important in your life. Yeah, um, look, I, I don't really know the answer to that question. Um, I think my my air, my air check was was pretty good. You know, it was pretty clear and 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 pretty. But maybe they did want a younger person. I, look, I don't know. But Steve Swadling gave me a, uh, gave me a go reading the news at 2GN Goulburn, and it was honestly one of the best years of my life because you were the you were the man. You read the six. 6.37, 7.38, 8.30 and 9 bulletins and the, the 10 and the 11 live. But between 9 and 11, you panel Lawsy. Right. And then between 11 and 12, you went out and about, got what stories you could around town, came back at 12, read Midday Live, and then you pre-recorded 1, 2, 3, 4, 5 and 6 local news bulletins. Wow. Yeah. And I lived only two blocks from the station. So if something happened, I'd just simply go back in and do it in the afternoon. Oh, okay, so, right. so, so much. I loved that job so much. People in the town said to me, are you keen? Are you going to be here for a while? And I said, yeah, I am. You know, I really love it. It's, it's great. So they just started to feed me stories. And I was starting, I was a real country radio reporter. So they would ring me in the afternoon and say, you know, this is happening tonight. You should come along. And, you know, I'd be getting backgrounded here and backgrounded there. And I was able to actually, in my little six-minute local news bulletin, which preceded the national bulletin. So I'd say, that's the latest 2GN news on 1368 2GN. Now, the national news. And bang, we'd take the 2UE feed for the national news. And so... I loved it. It was great. The local sports people would slide under them on Sunday night as they went past. They'd slide the results from the from the weekend, the ping pong tournament, the basketball tournament, the local cyclists, the speedway. In fact, I ended up calling the speedway. So I had an opportunity to do everything. And in that year, I learned more about radio and about putting together news and producing content than I have, I think, in all the years since. Then my wife had a traffic accident driving. She was at the time working in Canberra and driving to Goulburn, had a traffic accident. She was four months pregnant with my middle son, Lewis, and said, that's like, oh, I don't want to drive anymore. So overnight, just like that, pack up our bags in Goulburn and we were gone. Right. Uh, and I was lucky enough because 2GN is part of the Capital Radio Network, um, I was lucky enough to get a job at 2CC, which the, in the newsroom there, which in those days was uh, housed in the Parliamentary Press Gallery in the two GB rooms. Okay, yes. So as part of a trade-off, I think, between GB and, and Double C for the rugby league coverage, there was some sort of contra deal or some yeah, sort of deal yeah, there. Yeah, yeah, that rings a bell. Yeah, where, where, where the, a desk in the two GB room at Parliament House in the press gallery was assigned to two double C, and that's where I worked. I was there for nearly two years before they then relocated the newsroom out to Mitchell, where it still remains today at the studios, and I was there for another 18 months. So 
all up three and a half years in Canberra for 2CC, ended up producing the Mike Jeffries Breakfast Program. And at that time, I was reading the sport in the breakfast bulletins, producing Mike. I was news director and I was operations manager for the radio station at the same time. Wow. So when you got into radio, you really got into it. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, well, that's right, I did. And, you know, I learned a lot there as well. Um, when I say I learned more in that year in Goulburn than anywhere else, I, I, that was because I was really taken under the wing. Stephen Swaddling, who was the general manager at the time, um, rest his soul, passed away a couple of years ago, a fantastic human being, um, died very young of a brain tumour. He took me under his wing and said, listen, I'm going to teach you everything. And he did. We'd often be up the, at the transmitter and he'd be showing me things at the transmitter. Um, just terrific, terrific opportunity. So you must have felt like you've got like a real radio education in the space of 12 months that perhaps somebody that had sort of cut their teeth in the country that may have spent the, probably the best part of a, a decade learning. No question about that. And, in fact, in, in, a, in a sort of perverse way, it, it was fantastic because – I'd only been there about six weeks and we had news boss and we had all the latest technology when all the computers just crashed. And 2CC had a lot of trouble with the computer system. It was a real drama. The whole network had a lot of trouble with computers. And so I was very much down the, down the pecking order to have it prepared. So I was ripping and reading. And what's more, I was using carts. To, f- to file audio in the middle of my bulletins. Old school. A very old school. So even though I wasn't part of it when it was around in its heyday, I had to do it. I had yeah. to make do with it. And it was Stephen Swaddling, bless his soul, again, who said to me, I said, oh, I've got no audio. He said, mate, there's a cart machine in there. What's wrong with you? I said, I don't know. <laughs> a cart machine? He said, go on, go on. So I would go out with my mini disc... Yes. Do the recordings, come back, rip from the mini disc onto reel to reel, yep. and from the reel to reel into Put the it in the carts. Into the carts. Yeah. And I'd take into my news bullet and take four carts in and they'd be marked up there and I'd be reading, ripping paper off a printer and reading from paper. So it was a terrific learning curve. Just fantastic. And I and I can still today, if I was to walk into a news booth today, I guarantee you I would have paper with me in case the prompter went down because I learned then. <laughs> You've got to have something in your hand if you've got three and a half minutes to go. You've got to fill it somehow. You can't just get out. No. Oh, goodness me. Yeah. So, I mean, was that something that you'd sort of pegged yourself for? Did you ever think entry into radio, I'll become a newsreader? Or were no. you kind of looking at becoming, I guess, a, a jock because of your, your background in, in music? You'd be yes. able, perfect for, for that kind of scenario. Exactly. I, thought but I, I thought I'd be a jock. Like, like anybody else, though, that... If you're really keen to get into to media or radio or whatever the case may be, you really have to be prepared to do just about anything. And I guess given the, the grounding that you had at, at Max's, I mean, fortunately, uh, a lot of people sort of derided that course after some time and I think perhaps some people stayed a little bit long, but it really did give you the way that he presented the, the format, gave you a taste of a little bit of everything. That's right. So that you had that to fall back on if you were ever in that situation. So, you know, you could read a commercial because that was part of the, the script. You could read the news. Then you could, you know, do the jock stuff, which was the intro and outro of music and have ad libs, which were essentially scripted uh, pieces about, you know, your life or whatever you did. So I don't know how you found it, but I, I kind of think that that little sample of everything gave you that sort of well-roundedness so that when you did go to places like Goulburn and Canberra, you were able to step in and do anything. That's exactly right. There's absolutely no question about that. 
I did the I was only a couple of weeks, the short course at afters in in news presenting, really just to give me a, a bit more, I suppose, experience in terms of being able to target those particular jobs. Yeah. Well, because I was applying for copywriter, I was applying for all sorts of roles. But when I saw specifically that they were wanting news people, um, I was able to sort of target those jobs because I had those couple of weeks experience at afters. But yeah, you're hundred percent right. <clears throat> the 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 what I found at Max was um, that he taught me an ability or provided me at the end of the, of the training with an ability to do a whole range of things and be not afraid to try anything. And because you've got that little bit of experience across all the board, you say, oh, I'll have a crack at that, no problem at all. And so when you're out in the wider market, when especially in country radio stations, when they need you to do everything, they need you to MC the the barbecue at the Bunnings on the Saturday morning, or they need you to host a Saturday afternoon charity event. That you're able to get up and do it because you're a seasoned performer, and that's what, as we all know, that's what everybody in radio is. And I mean, your background in doing all of those gigs, there's obviously a lot of performance to that as well. So you would have already been comfortable around uh, a wide range of people and being older in age, you probably didn't have that sort of fear factor. You were able to sort of approach it with a little bit more confidence than perhaps somebody that is green as grass coming out of uni. 100%. And and especially playing in music in country pubs, B&Bs, rural shows, I played everywhere. And if you don't know, if you can't communicate with the punters or you don't want to communicate with the punters or you think you're too good to communicate for the punters, they'll let you know straight away. And it's not pretty, I can tell you. So you've got to be, you've got to have your wits about you and be able to say, listen, you know, um, I'm, I'm willing to relate to you and engage with you. And that's very much what radio is about, engaging with the audience. As Bruno used to say, um, they're not interested in listening to somebody talking about themselves. They want to be engaged with you. And, and I try to keep that as a policy still today. So you definitely found that that was a, a thing that you could use to your advantage in the radio situation, even though you were sort of coming in at, a, I guess, a, a base level. You already had yeah. a world of experience in other areas which was able to sort of mould it all together. Yeah, well, that's right. Yes, absolutely. And one of the other things that Stephen Swadling taught me at 2GN um, was about sales and dealing with the client and making sure that people got what they – sought and got what they paid for. And that's very much something that is is paramount when you're a musician, when you're an entertainer. You've got to be able to provide what it is that people want or they're not going to be happy with you. And that's not just the audience, but the but the person paying the bill at the end of the day as well. And I did dozens and dozens, hundreds of, of charity gigs, of corporate gigs. I'm still doing them today. In fact, I've got this Saturday, got a charity gig this Saturday. And I've told them, this is what I'll provide for you. And if they don't get what they what you say you're going to, they're not going to be happy. And that's very important too. That's what I taught me with sales in radio as well. You've got to provide a service and you've got to do it well. Now, that experience in Canberra started off in the in the newsroom and doing things like that and producing Mike Jeffries. What did you learn from that working with someone, a seasoned professional like Mike, who's obviously done the rounds of, of uh, commercial radio in, in metro markets and things like that? What was that experience like for you to learn from in Canberra? Preparation is everything. Preparation is everything. Mike used to go in with enough copy to talk for six hours. And again, like Ray and and like Alan, 
they let the sort of their their their, their judgment guide them how the program will will pan out. Um, he, he always had his 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 interviews well researched. He knew exactly what he was going to talk about. Breno was always said, "Don't ask a question unless you know the answer." Um, so they would have often the answers written there. So Mike was a great preparer, and I hadn't really seen that level of preparedness before because working at 2GN is a music station. Yeah. So, sure, there was the odd interview and, and the, 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 the jocks would have a couple of questions, dot points written out. But by and large, this was a whole new level of, of preparation and that was one thing I learned. We have an audience here. My daughter's wanting something. What is it, Holly? I spilled a little bit of milk. Oh, you spilled a little bit of milk. Okay. All right. We'll be back in a second after I clean up the milk. Yeah, okay. So, Holly Grace making her debut on the Media Mates podcast. Yeah, the preparation side of it is something that I guess that you wouldn't have. Well, when you're at at a place like at Two GN, you're a you're a one man band. So being part of a a team as such, um, and being able to contribute towards a a show that Mike was producing on a daily basis in a, a really important market like Canberra must have been a, a great experience for you. And also, yes, indeed, and also watching somebody with that much experience being able to target their audience. So as soon as he arrived, Mike, he really, really dived into local politics, local issues, and he knew more about it than most of the people he'd be interviewing because he did his research and he did his preparation. And I was very fortunate at the time when I worked in the newsroom that uh, Mike's then wife, Kylie Johnston, what came to work as the news director and yep. I worked under Kylie and she was outstanding because very professional. I'd been many years, all, all, all manner of places, many years at 2, 2GB herself. So I learned a lot from Kylie as well. So to go from the small country newsroom and then being based at Parliament House as, as well, working alongside people like Alison Carabine was there, Tom Malone was there at that, at that time. So you saw the true pros and we were all, we were issued press gallery passes, even though we weren't, I suppose, really part of the press gallery. Yeah. Um, we were able to mingle in those circles and go and watch Parliament um, and, do, you know, be at press conferences that weren't necessarily uh, relevant to our audience, although some were. Um, we were still able to see the comings and goings and, and all of the parliamentary issues and how it was dealt with behind the hallowed walls, which was just absolutely priceless in terms of experience. Absolutely fantastic. It must have been a real eye-opener for you mm. to, to be part of that scene in Canberra where they obviously, you know, they live and breathe that kind of stuff. Yeah, and I was 15 years older than most of the people there. That's the other thing. So, you know, that was, it was very much like, you know, who is this guy? Uh, but everyone was very, very welcoming and very generous and uh, I learned a lot um, and I really thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, Canberra's both my middle my second and third son, were born in Canberra. Great place, place to raise children. Um, unfortunately, that contract that my wife and I had secured with the with the uh, federal government, which was one of the reasons why Jen was driving to and from uh, Goulburn to Canberra, wound up. So after three and a half years, it was time to, well, sort of think about what we might do. And Jen is a Sydney girl. Um, so before I knew it, we were back here. And how did that all unfold for you to get the, the gig at 2GB where you are now working on the, the Alan Jones breakfast show, among other things that you do? Yeah, how did that all pan out for you? The great Trevor Long. Right. So I had been dealing with Trevor because I was operations manager at 2CC and we would take the continuous call team on a Saturday or on Sunday and then we would often organise for the 
Canberra Continuous Call Team, as they called themselves down there. Right. Who was part of that? Uh, I can't remember. It's Phil. Um, Phil, oh, I should know Phil's last name. Oh, so yeah, I know who you mean too. Yeah, yeah. Got him, he used to go to Olympics and call basketball. Yeah, 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 yeah. Phil, uh, uh, Phil oh, I can't remember his name, but I should. <laughs> we'll work it out. Yeah. So Phil was there, uh, and Kevin Wolf and the boys, uh, and they they would call. So, so I was Phil like, Lynch. Phil Lynch, I think it was Phil Lynch. So we, the hope so. Anyway, so we would call the, and I was always dealing with Trevor, establishing ISDN lines, yeah, and what yeah. have you, as part of the operations role. So when it became sort of apparent that Jen wanted to come back to Sydney, um, my time at, at 2 C was coming to an end. Uh, we started putting the feelers out. Trevor said, just write Breno an email um, and CC Dionysia, who's yeah. still there today, Dionysia Calaspiros. And so I did that and Dionysia got back to me in tw- 24 hours and said, come up, see Breno. Um, and in actual fact, it's a great story that, Mike Jeffries and Kylie Johnson had been at the uh, were then Rao Awards, the Radio Industry yes. Awards on the Gold Coast, and Mike had said very kindly to Breno, um, "Tell you this bloke, you should keep an eye out for Dan Mullins. Doing a great job for me down in Canberra." And Breno turned the program over and wrote my name on the back. And when he got back to work on the Monday morning, he wrote it inside the front of his diary. Can you believe it? Right. And and so when I emailed him. But when I emailed, Dionysia said, he has your name already. Um, why don't you come and see him? And I was like, how could he have my name? How would he know me? I mean, I'm yeah, just yeah, yeah, yeah. a pleb. Just as I've never lived right, in right. Canberra. Yeah. <laughs> and then I get there, he says, oh, yes, Mike Jeffries gave me, oh, Mike Jeffries gave me your name and number. And I said, really? He said, yes, yes. And he said, so look, um, now that you're here, there's a jo- job going on the Jones show. How about it? And I said, Are you, What? <laughs> And this is this was fair on a Thursday morning at nine thirty, and I said, "Well, that's." Uh, and Brenner said, well, "Hang on, Danny boy, I've just got to go. Something's this, the world's exploded or something. Go, go downstairs and get a coffee or something, and I'll 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 call you back up when I'm ready." And I said, "Oh, okay, Mr. Brennan, certainly." So I went downstairs, you know, standing in the courtyard. The great Andrew Moore walked down. Yes, <laughs> cigarette in hand. Starts I said, oh, hi, g'day, Andrew. I'm Dan Mullins from 2CC Canberra. I've met you a couple of times at Canberra Stadium. He said, oh, hey, Dan, how are you? You know, he's puff, puffing away on the Derrick. And I said, he said, what are you doing here? I said, oh, I've just come up, you know, looking for a job, sort of, you know, time's come to an end at 2CC. And then Bruno tells me there might be a job at the, uh, on the Jones show. And Andrew said to me, yeah, good luck with that, champion. That won't be, <laughs> that won't be stressful at all. I'll never forget I can, it. I can imagine him right. saying those exact words. Yeah, yeah. Kept smoking his dirty. Anyway, you know, I walk back upstairs. I'm in the lift going back upstairs thinking, oh, maybe this will be stressful, but I don't know. Anyway, so I went inside and I said, look, why don't you come back tomorrow and meet Paul Christensen? He's never been late and never had a day off and has been yeah, with yeah. Alan for 125 years. Um, come and meet him tomorrow. If he likes you, you've got the job. I said, what? Okay. I'll be here at 9 o'clock tomorrow morning. So I went, I went, I was staying with a friend in, in Sydney that night and I yes. went back to his house and, you know, couldn't sleep. I was frantic. Got up in the morning, you know, shaving, suit and everything. I got in there and Brenner said, oh, Paul, you won't believe it. The very first day he's ever had off in all of his years here at 2GB, he's had the day off. And I said, oh, no, you know, and he, but Brenner said, look, don't worry about it. You, you, you know, you, you got the job. It's fine. You've got the job. I said, oh. I mean, extraordinary. I haven't met Alan. I haven't met anybody. He said, you got the job. You start Monday week. So next thing I know, I'm back, drive back down to Canberra. Jen says, rings me on the mobile phone. 
how'd it go? Meeting John Brennan. I said, I've got to jump with the Alan Jones show. She went, what? So that's how it happened. And it was, it was just like that. Just, just happened overnight. Um, a week later, I came back up to Sydney, um, and stayed with friends. Like I couch surfed for three and a half months. Right. While we sold the house in Canberra and bought another house up here. The whole process, in actual fact, took us, took six months. But by, by the time we bought the house and settled, it was a six month process. It was just a nightmare, that whole d- debacle. But then, so that was July 2004 and January 2005, the family moved back up here and we've been here ever since. So I've been with Alan now 13 years. It must have been a surreal feeling that everybody's aware of the broadcasting legend that is Alan Jones and then all of a sudden you've flummed your way in through the side door, the back door, underneath the carpet somehow. Unbelievable. <laughs> I'm sitting at the, the way it works is Alan has a has his desk in the corner and then there's a boardroom table and the, the newbies always sit at the boardroom table at the meeting, you see. So I'm sitting there and this Alan Jones is sitting there. He looks up and says, oh, you must be Dan. I said, yes, Mr. Jones, you know, shook his hand, you know. He said, well, sit down there. Don't make too much noise, you know, don't get under our feet or in our way and you'll be right. And I said, okay, fine. And I've been there ever since. So talk to me about the whole experience of working on that show and being part of, you know, it is a machine every single day. I've spoken to Gavin Carmody. I've spoken to Andrew Moore. It's an experience like no other. I would imagine. It is. When you not, not only, do, as I said earlier, are you operating at redline speed all the time, you are under a lot of pressure to make sure you know your stuff because you, if, if Alan says to you, just explain to me in layman's terms, family part benefit A, family tax benefit part A, if you can't do it, if you're just winging it, you can't, there's no wing in it. You're getting found out pretty You quick. have to know. And so you've got to back yourself by doing the work yourself. So when he says, well, tell me what that is in layman's terms, you've got to be able to do it. And as I said, said earlier with Mike and, and, and what Breno had taught me and, and many other people that you should know the answer to your questions before you answer them, that's more often than not how we operate with Alan. We do the research so that we know exactly what the answer is going to be. And he can then, by backgrounding him, he can then f- formulate the interview to, to proceed in such a way to get the desired outcome. And and that's great to watch the great man do it, an intellect, a soaring intellect. Uh, and watching it firsthand in, in, in motion day after day is quite extraordinary. Um, so it's very busy, but I love my job. I've never said I don't want to go to work tomorrow. What's it like? Doing it for the first time, you sort of mentioned there the offhand way that you've sort of met Alan, but then to actually experience it, given the fact that, you know, he may have seen Dan Mullins on a sheet of paper and been anticipating a fresh-faced 22-year-old kid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fitting into that cog where, as I've sort of said with Andrew and, and Gavin previously, once people get a start in there, not many leave. No, and that's testament to who he is as a person and as a boss. So he, he always says that you're a, you're a father and a husband first and an employee here is a distant second. So no matter what happens in your family life, it takes precedent. And he really believes that and he really lives and breathes that. So if there's something happening at home, 
That's that's number one. He doesn't want you to be there. That's number one. If it's impacting your work, go away. And I've had reason over the years where his uh, his generosity has been extraordinary, uh, and he has been amazing. And that's because he says, "Go and look after your family." So, in answer to your question about being the cog in in the wheel, when I first started, I wasn't sure exactly what I was expected to do. So I sat down and did what I did for Mike Jeffries for all those years. I just started punching out stories, look in the paper and think, that's a good yarn. I'll rewrite that for Mike. And I knew Alan's politics. So I figured, well, it's probably a lot like Mike. And in fact, I knew it was. Um, so I wrote it from their perspective. So you, you would top and tail. Look, this is a story that's just absolutely ridiculous, you know. Uh, this will resonate with the mums and dads out there sitting in the traffic with their children in the backseat going to schools. So that's the sort of in top and tail. Then you tell the story. Um, tell them what you're going to tell them. Tell them and then tell them what you told them. And then finish it by saying, by giving the reason why you've made those points above. And and that's exactly what I did when I sat down with Alan. Now, he sort of said, oh, it's too long or it's, it's too short. I'm going to need a little bit more detail or by and large. I think you're doing a very good job. And so at the end of the first week, uh, we have a meeting every day at about 11 so two hours or so after we come off air, and he said uh, to me, you may very well be the very best um, fresh starter we've ever had. And I went home just dancing on, on cloud nine. Mm. And then on Monday morning, um, we came out. Uh, the following Monday morning, I'd been in Canberra with the family, you know, hooray, what a hero. <laughs> <laughs> Monday morning, come nine o'clock, he said, well, I gave you a rap last week. I've taken it back. Hopeless, absolutely hopeless. I said, what have I done, you know? Yeah. And it was something that I had given him that simply wasn't up to speed. So... Who's you know, a pretty good slap around the gills um, to make sure you do your homework and make sure that you know what you're talking about because it, 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 I can guarantee you that he'll pick it up while he's reading it and you can hear it in his voice when he's reading it. He's unsure. It's only happened a handful of times. Put it in the metal bank and save it for later That's for a bit, it, a, it, uh, the highlighter, a bit of a touch-up. You can hear the highlighter. <laughs> and sometimes what's written in high, in highlighted pen, you think, oh, that was his thoughts at the time. You look at it and think, uh, Daniel, what do you call this? That's it. What do you call this? <laughs> and so, and so, yeah. So being part of that big cog is very important. Um, I mean, as I said earlier, Paul, you know, I mean, 25 years, you, you're not executive producer of the number one radio show. It's it, it, for 25 years for nothing. I mean, he's, he's about as good as they get. And uh, and watching him for all of those years, I've learned so much. It's been incredible, insane. Uh, we've got some, had some good young blokes come and go as well. Tim Barton's been there for uh, – he came six months after me. He writes a lot of the editorials, does a lot of the background work, a lot of letters to ministers and what have you. Tim's – I've learned a lot of Tim as well. So we're a good little team, but it's incredible how few people leave. Mm. In fact, only since I've been there, only Gavin, I think, has left. That's extraordinary. And he's gone six, seven years ago. So yeah, yeah. that's a remarkable sort of achievement. And, and as you said before, is really a great testament to not only Alan, but the people that also work alongside him. That, yeah. um, because it's not an easy job. It can be stressful at times. You're working, um, as I've always said, you're not getting up early. You're getting up in the middle of the night for a shift like that, which must be strange for someone who was doing the other end of the day as that a musician. Is, that is 100% correct. That is so true, Ralph. Um, it really was a shock to the system uh, because when I started in the marketing company when, in 19, I don't know, can't remember now, 1995 or 96 or something, 
um, they said, oh, we're going to put you in charge of dealing with this company that we deal with in New Zealand. And I said, hey, no problems. New Zealand, I love the New Zealanders. We have to start work at 6 a.m. because it's 8 a.m. there. And I, I, it was, it was hellish. I mean, it was hellish. <laughs> I would be sort of in the fetal position on the bus climbing up Bondi Road, the 380, getting a bus to town every day. It was like just a nightmare. But I, I saw what the end goal was, not at that stage, but I knew, look, I'm going to have to transition from being a professional musician. That's no longer tenable. Um, certainly at that stage too, Jennifer and I were talking about one day settling down and getting a, starting a family, and I knew I'd have to have something to call a job. Right, so you can't just go into someone and say, hey, I've been a musician for 10 years of my life. There was that's uh, right. a period there mm-hmm. where you had to be smiley suit yeah. tie guy. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, and you know, I sold guitars for a while uh, in, in Brisbane. I worked uh, in, a, in a guitar shop, uh, music shop, and, and realised that really wasn't for me either. I didn't really like that too much. So I gave that a crack, and that's where a lot of musicians go. You know, it's when they come off the road, they go and work in a, in a, in a, in a, in a shop. And I wasn't inclined to sort of start my own little business or anything because I'd really been doing that for nine years and I was sick to death of chasing money, mm. you know, ringing pubs and clubs and saying, listen, are you ever going to pay that invoice? You know, So I got sick of that. Really, you were a one-man band. Uh, and so now, looking back, uh, it was a transitioning and, it, and it, was, it was the right time. But you're quite right. When I, when I started with Alan, I think I was 37, um, turning 38. So I was considerably older than any, any of the other rookies mm. or certainly anybody starting in the newsroom. I was yeah. at least 15, oh, 15 years older than them, you know. Okay, we've sort of got to the point where it's like policeman turned musician turned corporate guy, then radio. But how do you become so polished in your writing? Because to work for Alan, as we've sort of mentioned, it's it's in-depth and it, and it's the, all of the points have to be covered. So were you confident in your ability to provide the service that he wanted on a daily basis? Well, I'd or have, did that take some time? I, it most definitely it took, took some time, but that was part of that whole whole learning process because I'd worked with Mike. I knew what he expected, half pages, half page copy. Um, he worked in Courier New 12, which remarkably Alan works in. So, so that's just formatics. But having learned from, well, actually Max, Max Rowley, mm. how to write copy. That's too many words. He'd hold up the sheet of paper and say, that's too many words. And you'd say, yeah, it is too many words. It just looks like it's too many words. If it looks like it's too many words, it is. Yeah. And so you, so what I did, and I, was, I talked earlier about being made a team leader at this uh, marketing company. So all I did was sit in a desk at the end and I had this, like 30 telephone operators saying, you know, yeah. oh, we did the NRMA demutualization. We did the float of the um, AMP. We did Telstra, all that. And I just literally sat there doing nothing. Just looking over the desk, at everything okay? <laughs> was it? You go on a break. You go on a break. You go on a break. And Max once said to me, pulled me over and he said, uh, you, you need to start learning how to write stuff t- and make it tight. And I said, well, I don't quite understand what that means. Well, make it easy to read. Mm. You know, that, that, that's too many words. You, yeah. you, it's too hard to listen to. So I would sit there all day. I didn't at that time know how to work Microsoft Word. Right. Okay. So the very first thing I did when I sat down as this team leader, what am I going to do with my time? I'm, I'm bored out of my head. So I said, I'll moonlighting t- while on the job, like it. I'll teach myself Microsoft Word, and that's the very first thing I did. Yeah. 
taught with little with the little clip, the little clip that used to little paper clip yeah, used yeah, to go. Yeah, you yeah. know, have you got a question? And I click on it and it answer it. Taught myself first of all Word, Microsoft Word. Then I started writing. So I'd sit there all day. Actually, was taught how to touch type, and I could still type eighty words a minute in the coppers in the police. It was part of the. You had to be able to do it. Of course, yeah, yeah, yeah. Eighty words a minute, so I can still touch type today. So I started touch typing again and got my chops back up there. Then I started to write, and so I was just churn out copy all day, just out of the newspaper, out of wherever I could. I'd write commercials. I'd just sit and write ten commercials in a day. Uh, and it's just, because some of those scripts at, at at Max's, you know, you could have been writing ten pages for a yeah. a, uh, a a lesson there that was ordinarily like it was a ten minute show essentially for yeah. everybody to do. Yeah. Um, so I guess yeah, maybe that was the, the that was exactly the, act- where it was. the birthplace. For That's it. exactly what it was. And, <laughs> and then I went to then I went to to two GN where I had to keep it brief because it was a news bulletin, um, which was, of course news is different from from writing copy for program, but. But writing news bulletins, it's sharp and it's it's punchy and it's it, you've got to really cut the, the rubbish out. And, and and then to go from there um, to a metropolitan news bulletin, Canberra being as metropolitan as it as it mm. is. And then from there, right from there in the newsroom to then writing for Mike. So when I got to Alan, I knew to keep it pretty tight, not to, not too wordy. And um, and he's still using those scripts today. Great feeling when uh, Alan Jones reads your very first. Piece on air, and you're 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 listening and think, hey, I wrote that. That's cool. Uh, I can imagine. I mean, I guess the other thing that you would have to have got up to speed fairly quickly is the diverse range of subject matter that you have to cover. So you might be on any one day talking about superannuation, then yeah. you're talking about health, then you're into politics, yeah. then you're into sport, the arts. Alan is as well-rounded a broadcaster that there has ever been, mm-hmm. and he has interest and knowledge in all of those subjects. Absolutely. So as a guy that's working behind the scenes, are you divvying up the responsibilities with somebody else because you've got a strength in a certain area and somebody else has, or are you then, right, I'm going to become an expert in, I don't know, mining. I'm going to become an expert in in coal seam gas. Like, <laughs> Well, funnily enough, I'm the coal seam gas correspondent. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you so, have that on your business card. Yeah, yeah. So, 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 and and I do a lot of the um, ring that bloke and get that story. So Fred Smith rings up and says, "Oh, we're in a blue at Warringah Council. You know, there's ten of us out here. We're having a blue on the open line." And Alan says, "Well, hang on a second. We, there's far too much detail. I need to get that." So I'm the bloke who calls, and and so I've got to get my head around their issue, their local issue. And in some cases, they've been dealing with those f- for a decade, and there is thousands of pages of correspondence and information. And it's a complex issue that they've been pursuing and and fighting, if you like, for 10 years, and they want you to sum it all up in a page and a half for Alan Jones. So you've got to be able to sort of process all of that and put it in a brief for the boss, and that's one of the things that I do. And I do that nearly every day, three or four times a day. Um, and that's often what happens between 9 and 11. Um, the other things are... Well, Alan says that his mother used to say to him, to be interesting, you need to be interested. So I tend to be a bit of a news junkie. Were you always that way, even being a musician? Or it's obviously it's had to develop. Perhaps it has developed, not so much. Um, I was more a radio junkie, to be honest. Um, And and then when 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 I sort of came off the road, I, I, and started doing what I was doing, it, it became sort of 
uh, very clear very quickly that I was going to have to get my head around a few of these So issues. subconsciously, I guess, all those hours on the road listening to radio, you must have developed an acute sense of what is good and what isn't good, given the fact that the broad depth of areas that you were covering that while is, you're on the road. That is so. That is 100% correct. That and is 100% it, it's, correct. It, I'd imagine it'd be, it would have yeah. been sitting there in a part of your brain yeah, for now. that's 100% correct. Okay, that's going to sound shit on the radio or that will sound just right. That's right. And so I do every week a, a segment on Alan's show called The Bush Telegraph, which I've been doing now for nearly four years. And it's just a three-and-a-half-minute segment on a Tuesday morning where I tell stories about the bush to the big smoke or the 60-something stations that we satellite and sent a highlights package to. And that's stories that I knew, well, not I knew, but I can tell a story that's going to resonate with people because I spent so much time in the bush. I was born and bred in the country um, and I've been out there for, for many, many years. So I can see that. I can spot a good story. And, yes, uh, having been through so many different aspects, I suppose, or varied life experiences, as Breno used to say, good life experiences, <laughs> Uh, and I like to think that I'm interested enough to write interesting things. That's the simple. That's a very simple process. If you you look at it and think, yeah, it's pr- pretty much assured that the listener's going to go. Yeah. So your radar now, you think it'd be pretty good for pretty good content and pretty uh, good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Some things you give Alan, you think, wow, I didn't think he'd do that. But he does it. And you often have to proceed it by, by saying, you know, the, the opening line saying, look, I don't pretend to know anything about the V8 supercars or hey, I don't know. Alan, this is Alan Jones. You know, I don't know anything or pretend to know anything about ACDC, but I'm told the lead singer's walked away from the band because of loss of hearing. And it's not from rock and roll as you'd think, but from racing cars, mm. such as the lifestyle of a rock star these days. Yeah, 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 yeah. So that's how you write it. So that he can tell the story because a lot of ACDC fans listen to Alan Jones, but they wouldn't necessarily expect Alan Jones to know or yes. talk about ACDC. But it's a, it's a good little 90-second piece to take you off to the top of the hour. How much do you have to sell him on certain stories? Like if you think it's a good story for the audience and trying to convince him to get that over the line or is it well, there enough trust factor there? To- yeah, there's enough trust factor. But, but of the 15 to 20 or even sometimes 25 readers I give him in a day, in a morning, He'll navigate his way through them and do maybe 12 to 15. So some will just go on the bin because he says, I don't want to talk about that. I'm not interested in that. Um, or he might say at, the, at that 11 o'clock meeting when we wrap up each day, Dan, what on earth is this about? And so it might be something. And so I've taken it for granted that he understands what a podcast is or, mm. or he understands where, you know, where Woolaware is or he, but, He'll say, look, that doesn't make sense to me at all. Uh, funnily enough, uh, I once wrote a piece for him about the, the town of 1770 in North Queensland mm. that had 125 millimetres of rain in 24 hours, so five inches. And I wrote, and 1770, the locals write at 1770. So I, I wrote it and he looks at it and it says, what about this town of 1770 in Queensland? And he's looking at it. Just think, what on earth is wrong with you? Are you drunk? I said, what are you? Oh, no. What are you, what's wrong? He said, look, why is that like that? Why have you written it like that? He said, because it's the town, 1770. What do you mean? He said, the town, 1770. I've never heard of it. He said, never heard of it. I said, it was a town. Did you even have to go and get him? 
someone from 1770 I, to I, talk about it. No, I mean, I'm sure it would have been a five-minute segment. The, oh, that's fascinating. Who knew? That's it. Town called 1770. That's exactly mm, what happened. That's exactly what happened the very next day. <laughs> he came on and he said, look, just before we do go to the, the news of the day, did you know there was a town called 1770? In a way, he went, you know, and it became a piece <laughs> because he was able to, his interest was piqued. But the fact is he hadn't, he didn't know about it. So oh. I sort of took it for granted. So in some respects, you kind of kind of, Understand where he's coming from, a eh? yeah, and what his perspective would be. You're certainly not going to say something, write a copy there that he's not going to want to say himself. Oh, and you just know because someone that's sort of worked in radio and worked at Two GB and and not necessarily in the the Jones office, but you pick up certain things on the radio that you know that has been put in there by the research team. So, yeah, yeah. oh, <laughs> I still remember. It must be over ten years ago now when. Marcus Bagdadis made the final of the Australian Tennis Open. And there's Alan going on this this great thing about, you know, how how, how it is great it is to see an underdog in the in the in the final. It's just like it's from Cyprus. Fourteen tennis courts in Cyprus. Amazing. I'm just thinking, <laughs> someone has put that in there for him. And he's just like to you know, Doris out at Blacktown, yeah. she would think, Alan, how does he know that there's fourteen <laughs> tennis courts in Cyprus? That's right. <laughs> That's right. Now, some of it is funny, and you hear him sometimes say things, and you think you can hear him saying to himself, I hope that's right. I hope that's right. And you're, you're listening, thinking, I hope that's right. But it is, it is. We, we very, make very, very few mistakes. Um, and that's part of Paul Christensen's regime, you know, make sure you check what you're doing because we don't want any nasty surprises. What is it like for you to be able to, we spoke about the, the hours earlier, to get up at that? time every day to, to, to be in work. I mean, there's some people that it completely burns out after five or six years. I was one of them because it's a permanent state of jet lag. Yeah, it is. That's exactly the best way to put it. If someone asks you what it's like, it is, yeah, jet lag all year long. Um, look, I, I actually do it pretty easy these days, um, and that's because um, back – well, my boys are in year – the second and third boys are in years 10 and 8 now. So I've been home every day after school for their whole school lives. Uh, and when they were in preschool and in childcare, I was able to pick them up every day at midday. It's a great feeling, isn't it? It is. A, it's a great feeling. And really, that's been the trade-off. Um, and, you know, they, there are not many dads who can say that they've not only spent the toddler years with their kids, uh, you know, and you've got your daughter here today. It's, it's a fantastic thing. It's, you, you'll never get – you can't take that away from you. And you'll never get that time back. No, never. And so, you know, they'll come home – my boys will come home from school this afternoon and the dad's there. It's fantastic. Um, so that's why – that's my motivation. And quite frankly, I don't, I don't watch TV. I've never been a television watcher because I've been – I was a musician. So I was in pubs and clubs every night. I, I don't have a culture of television in me at all. Mm. I just don't watch it. I watch the football on Friday and Saturday nights and that's all. Um, and – and so at 8.30, I'm ready for bed anyway at 8.30. So I go to sleep. I'm lucky. I, I keep myself um, pretty fit uh, so that I can sleep well. Um, and the hours really don't bother me that much. I, maybe once or twice a week I have a little snooze. Um, but the days of having sort of big afternoon kips are over because that, that just messes with It just you. destroys you, doesn't it? It just messes with your head. <laughs> Um, because some days you get up, you feel just absolutely dreadful and you can't, you can't shake it for three days. So I just gave up on those. But... 
coming down here this morning, I was had to put the aircon on pretty full on because I was doing the old <laughs> noddy at the traffic lights. But you know, we're aware of it. We're aware of it, so we're, we're you know we're awake to it, as they say. Working with, and you've mentioned him a few times, somebody like Paul Christensen who has an intellect to rival that of Alan, and to be able to, and like you do, get inside the man's head every day and to do it for 25 years. Yeah. That takes a person of special character. What can you tell us about Paul that makes him so good in that role? Discipline. Discipline. That's the number one thing. So Paul is there at 3 o'clock every day. It's not there at 10 past 3. It's not there at 20 past 3. He doesn't think, oh, I'll just hit the button and go have some another 10 minutes snooze. It's done. That interview script is done. If Alan says, look, have you written a script for that book? It's done. If you've done that, it's done. There is never, ever in all the 13 years that I've been there been a case of Paul saying, um, actually, I haven't done that. Or actually, I don't know that person's number. Or I don't – it's never, ever happened. It's a discipline like I've never seen before. And it means that we all have to operate at a level – you can't just say to Alan Jones, or indeed Paul Christensen, look, sorry, I haven't done it. It doesn't happen. <laughs> it doesn't happen. It was made abundantly clear to me in the first two weeks I was there, sitting in the meeting and watching how it all quietly, because I made a pledge to myself that I'd keep my mouth shut, my ears open, and look around and learn as much as I possibly could about how this all works, because I quite like the idea of being here for a while. Um, and looking and, and, in a sense, saying, well, well, conceding, I suppose, in a sense that I was way out of my depth. So, you know, well, if, I'm, if I am, I, I should learn. And so watching from then on, from that moment on, I learned it's never good enough to say, oh, I'll do it later or... So there's no, the dog ate my homework. No way. Uh, under no circumstances. It just doesn't happen. And... In, in the discipline of Paul's running of the show, um, the checks and balances are such, because of the discipline, that things get done and, and it's a well-oiled machine. So you know that that's going to be there and you know that that's going to be there and you know that that's going to be ready when it's required and that's going to be ready when it's required. And so, in a sense, that you can relax because you know you've done the work. Yeah. And, and that's the same with anybody, whether it's a golfer, a swimmer, a... A broadcaster, a producer, or, or what? House painter. If you've done the preparation, you can relax it because you know that the job will take care of itself. Well, only you know how much work you put in to make it the best it can be. That's so true. That is so true. And 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 I'll and I know sometimes that Alan, you know, it'll be Sunday night, and I'm thinking he's doing that interview tomorrow, and I've done the script. Well, not the script. I've done the brief. But that's one of the ways Alan gets his head around it. He then takes it home and writes into a dictaphone. He'll write the actual script himself, sometimes yep. 20 pages. But he, by the end of it, he knows it back the front. And as I say, we're often providing the answers to the questions that he's going to ask. So you know, okay, and you, you Sunday night you're thinking, oh, man, he's going to do that interview the next day. And it's great relief when it's 20 minutes of live radio and you know you have crossed every T and dotted every I and it's absolutely watertight, you go down to the bottom of the hour and we've had some great wins. I mean, we have had some great wins for people. We've taken on their their issue. Alan's led the charge um, and we've had some great wins, some great justice 
for people. Some 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 real. We've made some big changes in people's lives, and that's very very rewarding. It's uh, it's a good thing. I guess in part of that team, you're only as bad as your weakest link, and nobody wants to be that weak link. Yeah, uh, that's hundred percent. Hundred percent. Yeah, that doesn't happen. You yourself sort of branch out into the broadcasting part of it as well. That must give you like a unique uh, take on things and it must like gives you a great deal of satisfaction that you're, you're able to do that side of things if required as well. Yeah, not nearly as much as I'd like to, to be honest. Um, there's a lot of people uh, sticking their hands up for jobs uh, around at the moment and uh, only a few shifts to fill. Um, yeah, I absolutely love it. I absolutely love it. Um, it's it's just one of those things. I, I mean, just I suppose my whole life really I've performed behind a microphone. So I love it. I love communicating with people and I'd love to get the opportunity to do a lot more. I'm doing a lot of this podcasting now, which is which is great as well. But, yeah, radio is my, uh, my true love and I can't see myself um, moving anywhere soon. Let's talk about your interest in podcasting and what you do and the shows that you've developed. What What is it that, that you're currently working on? Okay, so I walked the Camino de Santiago, the Way of St. James, a pilgrimage in Spain. It's a 1,000-year-old pilgrimage in Spain, and I walked it last year to arrive at the final destination, which is a, a Gothic cathedral in the town of Santiago de Compostela, and I arrived there on my 50th birthday. So I walked for three weeks to finish off the first 50 years of my life. Wow. It was fantastic. Absolutely spectacular. So spectacular, in fact, is the journey and the pilgrimage overall that when you finish, you never, it never leaves you. And you are part then of a global family of Camino Peregrinos. And they, they, you, they communicate with one another. There are forums with 300,000 members. There are groups that get together here in Sydney for, for lunch once a month, dinner once a fortnight. Everybody is still very much entwined as a result of having walked the pilgrimage. So I, I, when I came back, I thought, how can I be part of that community from Sydney, Australia, how can I be part of that community and stay engaged? So I thought about doing a podcast and, and, la- and a- enabling people to tell their story, much like you do here. Yeah. And you, you do a very good job of drawing people's story out of them, perhaps stories they didn't even know they had. <laughs> or wanted to share. Or wanted to share, quite. So that's been my journey now. Um, I've, I've, I've only been publishing or, or releasing uh, for about five weeks, but the response has been overwhelming. Um, Wooshka, as you know, with the platform that you use, the, the analytics are astounding. I mean, and being a global uh, content provider and, and this being a global uh, podcast, I can see where people are listening to it from all over the world. In fact, just this morning I was talking to a vet in Ohio who takes war veterans on the Camino as a way to deal with their post-traumatic stress disorder. And I said, you know, I was wondering if you'd be interested. He said, I've, I've already listened to your podcasts. I'm like, what? Well, how did you hear about it? And he said, oh, social media, you know, people are talking about it. So it's great to think that you The can- power of something like that That's can right. get out. And yeah. the, the, the barrier to entry to do something like that, which, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago would have been unimaginable. You would have had to have been 
and Alan Jones or a Ray Hadley yeah. to have command of, yeah. of, of of the audience that you That's have. Right. But now anybody can, yeah. can do that. And the I think that the interest in, in that kind of thing is growing, particularly when it comes to things that are, people are interested in. So people are able to join the dots a whole lot quicker that they can listen to whatever they want, whenever they want, on their phone, in the car, wherever they may be. That's right. And it's not just gardening, but it's roses. And it's not just roses, it's types of roses. And so I'm a great fan of rugby league and, and I'm a great fan, fan of cricket. You, you just open that Pandora's box, podcasts about rugby league. There are dozens and dozens of them. There, you can get podcasts about the Broncos. You can, you can get podcasts about Cronulla Sharks. So for, there's something for everyone. And content, now, because of the internet, we don't have to sit and watch the television and that's what's being provided to us, we're able to go in search of what we are interested in. And this is an even more definitive, if you like, opportunity to do that, that you can get in your car, you can drive to to wherever you're going. I've got a two-hour drive to Newcastle this afternoon. Fantastic. I'm going to download four podcasts about the Brisbane Broncos or the Cronulla Sharks and listen to them back-to-back all the way there. I don't have to listen to anything else. No. I can listen to just what I want to listen to. I don't have to listen to them talk about the Penrith Panthers or the or the Canterbury Bulldogs, I can listen to just what I want to listen to. Yeah. And that to me is a whole new ball game. And to think sort of getting in on a on a sort of ground level and being able to do it, using the skills like you that I've that I've that started with Max Rolly yeah. almost twenty years ago. In fact it probably is twenty years ago. Jesus. Now I think about it. Um being able to do that is really exciting. I think it's fantastic. Um, and who knows? It may be in a, in a few years' time. Um, it'll be a, a little cottage business that I run upstairs at my house, and 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 it's enough to to get me by. Um, it'd be fantastic to think that that was the case. Um, possibly unrealistic, but who knows? Who knows but obviously, there's the still you know your bread and butter is at the radio station every day, where there is still going to be that interest in what's happening. Now that's and, right. Uh, radio, the the great advantage with everyone talks about is the the immediacy that it's that's able right. to that's deliver it. things. That's exactly with. right. Well, well, radio is the original social media, and if there's a bushfire, there's smoke in the sky. You don't go onto your phone and look for a website. You no. turn on the radio. If there's a traffic accident, you can see out the. What's going on? You turn on the radio. You don't pick up your mobile phone. The radio will always have a presence. And I think also the great thing about radio, particularly what the radio I do, is that people seek an opinion, an opinion. And that's that's one of the great things about having working in talk radio is the opinions. And you're hearing not only the, the host's opinion, but the opinion then of the of the public as well. So it's part. You're part of a much greater discourse, which which I love. I absolutely love it because I can listen to the radio all day. And you think, mate, you call us call, and you think, mate, you're an idiot, you know, <laughs> or, or you think, hey, give it to him, mate, give it to him, go on, yeah. go on. You know, it's you're, you're part of it. You're engaged, even though you're having nothing to do with the discussion. Yeah, just sitting in the car, you're engaged. I love that side of it. That's what I've always loved. As my daughter Holly cooks up. A nice yes. little uh, um, tea morning party. tea for us here. Um, part of your life, you may have been a late, late starter when it came to getting into radio. 
but you're already a granddad. That's right. Um, yeah. How has that part of your life all come yeah. to, together and how much do you enjoy that side of things at, at yeah. an early and, and healthy and, and young age? Yeah. Well, I was actually 46 when I became a grandfather, yeah. So uh, Audrey is uh, is four, uh, turning four this, this year. Um, it's absolutely fantastic. When I walked the Camino, part of it was to say thank you because, and not thank you to God necessarily, but just to say thanks, just to show some gratitude for the ex- extraordinary life I've had at only 50. Um, didn't have to wait to 72 to become a granddad. No. I've got a 46. And when you hold that little baby in your hands and think, wow, this is like my son's daughter. That's the most astonishing thing I can't begin to tell you. I've held my own children in my hands three times, been there for all three births. And as you know, that's just, man, that is like astounding. Yes. It is beyond words. You can't explain it. And then to hold your son's daughter in your hands. Uh, it really is. Uh, it really is incredible, um, and it's something I cherish every day. And she's a beautiful kid. She's a beautiful little kid. And we're having three sons, now we've got a now we've got a granddaughter. Now there's the, a girl. You got, the, you got the nice balance. We got the girl. You yeah. know. And so there's never been pink things. There's never been tea parties in my house. I'm sitting here. <laughs> Holly's, Holly's got these beautiful little cups in front of me, and I absolutely love it. Right. I love it. We never had tea parties. Uh, you know, we had dinosaurs. Uh, yeah, dinosaurs. You know, footy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, footy cards. <laughs> and there's a little tea party here in front uh, of me. Oh, it's great. Now, you've been very generous with your time, and I know you've got a, another meeting to duck off with, and you, you made the effort to come down here to, to Woolaware. But before we do wrap it up, I just want to get some advice from you as someone who, as I said a, a couple of times throughout this this podcast, is that you entered radio later than what most people do is people often flag a career early and then go for it. You've gone through a couple of uh, transitions and to, to end up here. Um, what would your advice be to anyone that's looking to get into radio now, not be it someone that has come straight out of uni? Because obviously there's a, there's a whole lot of people there that, that are willing to do that. But someone who is thinking, hey, I might give this a, a crack later on in life. Just do it. That's what I'd say. Just do it. Have a red hot go. I was not expected to get a job in radio at my age. And I was even old at the, at Max Rowley's Media Academy. I was considerably older than everybody else there. But just do it. Have a crack. And in doing so, you might find your niche. Um, I'm a great believer in having a go and what's stopping you. An old mate of mine once said to me, and he was 40 at the time, I've always wanted to play the clarinet. And I said, why don't you? He said, well, I'm 40. I said, mate, in five years' time, you'll have been playing the clarinet for five years. <laughs> what are you talking about? Go and learn the clarinet. He used to come to my gigs all the time and say, I'd love to play a musical instrument. I'd love to play the clarinet. You know what? He started taking lessons, and now he's 60 now, so it was 20 years ago. He's been playing clarinet in a band, in a jazz band, for 15 years. And it is his everything. He's a lawyer, but it's his everything. It's everything to him, the clarinet, because he said, you know what, I've always wanted to do it, and he did it. People say to me, I've always wished to play the guitar, so just do it. Same thing, I've always, I'd love to work in radio. Well, go ahead and do it. There are a million courses you can do now. You can do online courses. You can get a, a, a 
media degree, a degree in media, a diploma in media, and study at night on your kitchen bench. And, and you might find, I absolutely love this. And there's all different aspects of media now, not just radio. Digital media is opening up just a whole range of things that you can get your head into and different opportunities. You might find yourself sitting behind a desk somewhere like I was answering the phone, and in four years you're in radio. I was in radio, and I was doing a job that I love and still love today because I decided to have a crack, and uh, I was lucky enough that circumstances transpired that I ended up working on the Alan Jones show, and I really love it. I'm not necessarily saying that that's going to happen to everybody, but if you have a go, you, you maybe who knows what's ahead, who knows what the future holds. Have a crack. Tan Mullins, thanks very much for your time. Ralph, a pleasure. Thanks for having me. There he is, Dan Mullins from 2GB. If you really enjoyed my chat today with Dan, please let him know by sending him a tweet. He's at 2GB Dan Mullins. You can also follow us on Twitter, which is at MediaMatesAU. Check out the Facebook page. Most importantly, if you could subscribe in iTunes, that'd be great. It means you won't miss an episode. While you're there, leave a rating or review. That way more people will learn about the show. Until next time, I'm Ralph Tucker, and this has been the MediaMates Podcast. Media Mates Podcast. Podcast.